uh, lyrics there. In that day in heaven, he will wipe away uh, every tear. And until then, uh, we're going to have to wipe away our own tears. It was a sweet time of worshiping. Thank you, worship team. Let me pray. Holy, holy is the Lord. Holy. God, there is no one like you. There is no one beside you. Open my eyes. Open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things from your word as we continue to worship you. Amen. Before we get started, just wanted to say what a joy it is to see our brother Neil Horn join us uh, today in worship, coming uh, back to, to worship together uh, with the called out elect, the saints, as well as uh, be praying for uh, Pastor Terry Engling, who's going to be preaching right now at this time in Kansas. Uh, the last time that they were in town, I got to see him. And then uh, Pastor Trey Ochen and his family getting to worship with us today as Trey is on sabbatical. Uh, so it is a, a joyful time where we have a lot of worship going on everywhere. We're going to be continuing our study in First Peter, far, uh, full of hope, far from home. And on your outline and on the screen, you'll notice a large QR code. You can scan this and use it after the service to get additional information. There'll be sermons, there'll be links, there's uh, resources, books, links to books that I have used in preparing for this message. And you can use those books to go deeper into your study on biblical eldership, especially the book Build Biblical Eldership and the companion Acts 20 by Alexander uh, Strzok. We got to meet uh, Alex at the T4G conference. There you see a picture of Josh Simus talking with Alex. And I got to let him know that I was going to be preaching today on this message. And Alex made a special two-minute video for Harbor Shores of wanting to just share that with you. This past Sunday, for some, was the first day of school. Now, I realize that with that comes a gamut of emotions, right? Some are so excited for the first day of school, they have a new dress and a new backpack. Others, not so much, <laughs> right? I don't know if this kid is terrified about school or if it is the sheer weight of the size of the backpack on his back. Mike Olson, this cannot be good for this kid, is, am I right? This is not good. For me, I was somewhere in between. I was more like this kid, right? I was, I was excited about the first day. I had my lunchbox. For me, it was a $6 million man lunchbox. I liked the first day of school. Second day of school, couldn't wait for the end of the year, right? Here's a picture of me getting on the bus uh, for the first day of school. I, did not, I was on a fan of the bus because they had a nickname for me on the bus. They called me Piglet. And it wasn't because of my size or because I was an adorable little guy with a speech impediment. It was because growing up, my dad was a police officer, and as some of you may know, police officers have a nickname. They are sometimes called a pig. If your dad is a pig, that makes you a piglet. Now, as much as I hated the name piglet, kids are so creative, aren't they? As much as I hated the name piglet, I loved that my dad was a state police officer. It was like having a superhero for a dad. Because his motto, his job description was to protect and serve. And that goes right along with the main theme of this message. If you remember two words, it's protect and serve. Why? Because sheep need a lot of protecting and a lot of serving. Some need more protecting and more serving than others. 
Okay? And so, as you heard Jeremy read those verses, you may have asked, how does this message about elders apply to me? Or, if I'm not an elder and I don't plan on being an elder, why should I care? Well, hopefully, I'm going to convince you that this message is extremely important to you. I'm going to give you three reasons. A general reason, a specific reason, and a personal reason for you. But taking a quick glance at this passage, you'll see in First Peter, he says, So, I, exel- I exhort the elders among you. He's writing not to the elders. He's writing to the church. This is written to you. The church. Peter is writing to the church, written to you, about the elders. It is written to you. The question is, if it is written to you, is it really written for you? For instance, if I send a message, a text to one of your kids, and I say, hey, when your dad finds his phone, have him give me a call. Right? That's written to them, but it's not really for them. They're the messenger. Is that all Peter's doing here? Or is this actually something far more specific, where it is actually as much for you as it is for the elders. So that's what I'm going to try to prove to you by giving you a general reason as to why it is for you. We all know the scripture verse, right? 2 Timothy 3.16. We see that it says what? All scripture is, is breathed out by God. That also means is inspired by God. And because all scripture is inspired by God, it is profitable for four things. It is profitable, one, for teaching, two, for reproof, three, for correction, and four, for training in righteousness. If it was not inspired by God, it would not do any of those things. It would just be the words of men. But because it is the word of God, it is profitable for for those things so that, you could almost see the word so that, this is the reason why, why, that God's people, the man of God, may be what? Complete, and complete is defined as equipped for every good work. If you want to be equipped for every good work, all Scripture will accomplish that. And that includes 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1-4. through 4. That's just the general principle of why this verse matters. But what about something specific? What about verses that actually have to do just with elders? 1 Timothy 3, verses 2-7, through 7, we know, are the qualifications for overseer or elders. And it says in there, an overseer must be, and then it gives us all of these list of things. And as we look through that list, we can say, yep, yep, that's what an overseer should be. It should be all those things. But let me ask you, what if I took out the word overseer, and in there you put whatever it is you are? A husband, a father, a mother, a young person should be those things. Is there anything on that list that you would just take a pen to and just say, nope, don't need that? Not for me. Or is that just for elders? Let me ask you this, dads. Young man is coming to your house to woo your daughter. Woo, that's old King James for date her. Is there something on that list that you're willing to strike off and say, you know what? Just have him be all about money. That gets a little bit more closer to home. We look at that list and we say, yeah, that's good for for them. But what about for us? This applies to all of us to be specific. Looking at it a little bit further, we recognize that these verses, again, have to do with elders. The next set of verses that Paul writes from 8 to 13 are the qualifications for deacons. And then right after that, the next two verses, what do they have to do with? I didn't see this until our brother, Pastor Joe Futrell, showed this in our elders meeting. 
It has to do with the church. You're going to see that now in these verses. As he says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things. So these things that he is writing are the things about what? About elders and about deacons. These things I am writing so that if I delay, you may know. He wants you to know something. How one, here it is, how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church. Paul thought it was important that he write about the qualifications of elders and deacons for the rest of the church so we would know how we ought to behave. Because we've heard the saying, and this is where it comes from, as the leadership goes, so goes the church. This is why these verses about elders are important for all of us. But going back, just looking at that list again, as you look through that list and you go through and you start to check off, okay, sure, I could do this, I could do that. Uh, there was one specifically on there that kind of sticks out like a sore thumb. Able to teach. Now, Rob, you, that I know is, is specifically for the, the elders, for the overseers. It's even the only one that's not on the list for the deacons. So you can't tell me that that's for everybody. I mean, those other ones are great. Those are sober-minded. Yep, self-controlled. Definitely want that. Respectable. But able to teach, not so much. That's exclusively for, for just a special group of Christians in the church, right? Well, that's where we'll get into a little bit more specific as we see in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 11 through 14, the writer of Hebrews says about this, that's the, this is what he just got done talking about in the previous 10 verses, we have much to say and it is hard to explain. Why is it hard to explain? Since you have become dull of hearing. That can't be good. Why are they dull of hearing? Well, he says, for one thing, by this time, by this time is, by this time in your spiritual walk, in your maturity level, you ought to be teachers. Now, the you here, if we were in the South, we would say, y'all. It's in the plural. You all ought to be teachers. Every one of you who are mature in Christ ought to be teachers. Yet you need someone to teach you again and again and again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk and not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is, here it is, he is unskilled in the word. In other words, he is unable to teach others in the word as well of righteousness since he is what? He's a child. But solid food is for the mature. That goes back to by this time. You should have been maturing along in your walk. For those who have their powers of discernment, do you want your powers of discernment strengthened or weakened? Well, if you want them strengthened, you should have your powers of discernment by this time trained by constant practice. Training and constant practice. One of the ways that you train and practice is by taking what you've learned, being able to distinguish between good and evil, and begin teaching them to others. In wherever you are, talking about them with your family, talking about them with your friends, just sharing with what you have learned from the Word of God, and they share with you. Begin teaching even on that informal level. So that's a personal reason why we ought to, by now, be teachers. But you're thinking, but what if I don't know how to teach? Or I don't have the gift of teaching? Fair enough. What about the gift of mercy? 
Mercy's a gift. Don't have that. You can be unmerciful. The gift of hospitality. You don't have that. Just be unhospitable. No, we shake our heads at that and say, no, those are gifts, but we are still called to be merciful and hospitable, aren't we? Yeah, in fact, I would argue that those who have the gifts are the ones who will be able to teach us how to do them better for those of us who aren't naturally gifted, supernaturally gifted in those ways. And so those of us who may have a gift of teaching, it's our job to help others know how they can begin to teach. So what about women teachers? Uh, Or more specifically, what about women shepherds? Uh, The Bible says a lot and lots of sheep in the Bible. What we may not be aware of is that there's actually shepherdesses in Scripture as well. We see examples of Rachel, Zipporah, and her sisters, and arguably the Shulamite woman, where actual shepherdesses did this hard labor, this hard work of shepherding, and they had a heart of a shepherdess. We're going to look at what that looks like. Here's a main point that I want you to just kind of a, a theme that goes through is that we're all called to shepherd with the heart of our shepherd, even if we don't have the title. Even if we don't have the title of shepherd, we should have the heart of our shepherd, Jesus, who had the heart of a shepherd. Well, what about able to teach then? How am I going to be able to teach this? Well, one of the things is you'll need a tool. And one of the tools that I have for you is an acronym called PROCOMMAS. It has nothing to do with commas. It's just an acronym. It's basically an extrapolation of the uh, inductive Bible study of, you've heard it before, observation. You see that and observe. Interpretation, that's all the stuff here in the middle. And application. It's just expanding that idea of observation, interpretation, and application. But it starts with prayer, and prayer actually goes throughout the piece. We read the text, and the goal of it is right here at the end is to be able to teach it. So it doesn't just end with studying. The goal is to be able to take what I've done and now share that with someone else. And so I thought, I was meeting with a brother just this week that he's had a hunger and a desire to want to do this. And I gave him this tool, and and we spent an hour plus just talking about this. I'm not going to do that for you now. What I thought I would do to, to not only save some time is actually go through 1 Peter 5 this way. So you actually get to see it in, in work, which is why you see all of the diagramming on the screen. You can see why I'm getting what I'm getting out of the text. So looking at that now, we look at our text, 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4. And I want to even just right now, before I begin and go any further, is pray. God, uh, we sang it earlier that we need you to open our eyes. And so I pray right now for the Holy Spirit who is God, and inspired Peter to write these words, is the same God inside of all of your blood-bought children right now, that you would give us what we have not, that you would teach us what we know not, and that you would make us what we are not. Pray this for your glory, for Christ's reward, and by the power of God the Holy Spirit. Amen. So we pray, and then we're going to read. And as we read, as I am reading, I'm going to begin, even in my own mind, just start to make observations. As I go through, I'm going to be pulling out different things that I notice. And so just looking at that, as I begin to read, I look at, and one of the first things I see is the word so, which Jeremy, Pastor Jeremy, properly pointed out, is a little odd to start with a message there. Why? Because it 
automatically precludes that you know what was already said before it. And that was what Matt preached on last week. So one of the things I do when I'm reading and studying a text is I want to get it in context. And typically, I'll look at the verses that precede it and the verses that come after it. Now, for today's sake of time, I'm just going to read the verse before and the verse after. So to do that, I look at the verse before, and what does it say? It says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their soul to a faithful creator while doing good. And if I went back to the other previous verses, if you remember what Matt preached on last week. It was all about what? Suffering and trials. And so there you see it. Let those who suffer according to God's will. It's not just suffering for the sake of suffering. It's suffering because God has a purpose in why we might go through trials and sufferings. That is why Peter then says, So I exhort the elders among you. There must be a connection between suffering and leadership. In fact, when I try to... Uh, think of that uh, verse that comes to mind immediately is Matthew 26, 30 through 35, on the night that he was betrayed. Jesus, it says, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. Why? Because of me that night. They're going to fall away because of Jesus? How so? For it is written in the Old Testament, I will strike the shepherd. The I will is God himself says, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. One of the reasons why Peter is writing this is because when suffering comes, they will strike the shepherds. And when they strike the shepherds, what often happens, if the flock has not been properly trained and practiced, they will scatter. They won't know what to do. But if they have been properly trained and practicing in, in the power of discernment, it will be the next sheep up. And they will be able to continue to worship together in the midst of persecution. He goes on to say, But after I am raised up, I will go before you in Galilee. Peter answered him and said, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you this very night, before to you, Peter, this very night, speaking specifically to him, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. That sounds like a noble thing to say. Essentially what he's saying is, Jesus, you don't know what you're talking about. You're a liar. If you, if you say that, you don't know me. The truth was, Jesus knew Peter better than he knew himself. Before we get too hard on Peter, what does it say? And all the disciples said the same. My next point that we need to keep in mind as we study this is that even the best of men are men at best. Every person is either his best in Christ or he is his worst in himself. And we have this idea about getting saved that it's like a, a switch that we just flip on. And once it flips on, everything's good. The problem with switches is that you can also flip them off. We say, okay, this is what I'll do. I'll flip it on and I'll figure out a way to keep it on and it won't flip off again. I come up with some way in my, my strength to keep that switch on. And the problem is we cannot ever solve spiritual problems with man-made solutions. It didn't work in the garden where God came to Adam and said, Adam, you've sinned. Those leaves are not going to cut it. For without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sins. I'm going to have to shed blood. And God sheds the first blood, pointing to 
Christ who would come. That would be the only way that we who have sinned could be made right with a holy God. A, a spiritual problem needed a spiritual solution. So maybe instead of thinking of it like a switch, here is the idea of thinking of it like a dimmer switch. At some point when we are saved, the light is always on. It's just a question of how bright am I focusing on Christ versus focusing on myself? At some point, I'm on the continuum of maybe that light is turned so far down that I don't see any light at all. I'm in a season of life where there is no fruit. But the light is still on. And, and Paul put it this way, of, of being filled with the Spirit. He wasn't talking about being saved. You already have the Spirit in you, but that word filled is being controlled by the Spirit, like a hand fills a glove and controls the glove. And, and you say, well, isn't that the same as just taping the switch up or taping the, the dimmer switch on high? Not at all, because that verb in being filled is in the passive tense. It's allow yourself to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. Get out of His way and let Him control you supernaturally by allowing Him to have His way in you. A, a spiritual problem needs a spiritual solution because even the best of men are men at best. James 3, 2 says, For we all stumble in many ways. We, James is including himself in this. The idea of stumbling is falling. Falling into sin in many ways. Not just some ways, but many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. This is why we sang, Your grace is enough for me. Grace is not needed for perfect people. Grace is needed for those of us who stumble in many ways. And it is not a question of when or if your, your, your leaders will, will disappoint you and fail you. It's, a, it's just a matter of when. Because they are men, and even the best of men are men at best. And we are going to need a lot of grace with each other. Interesting, the verse that comes right before this in context has to do with the idea of teaching. In James chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Let not many of you uh, should become teachers, my brothers. Now, he's not discouraging people from becoming teachers. He's discouraging them from becoming teachers for the wrong reasons. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. There were those who were just becoming teachers carelessly, thinking that it would result in just profit and gain, not realizing that what they taught, what they said, was primarily based on what he says, and that if we say something that would cause somebody to stumble, we would be held accountable for their stumbling as well. Yes, they're held accountable for their actions, but where did they get that from? Which is why we need to be careful about what we teach. And also, the second point is, are you living what you say? Does your life line up with what you preach? In fact, all of us already are teachers. You are preaching a sermon by the life you live to everybody around you. Louder than the words you say. The question is, how good is that message? Does that message line up with Scripture? That's the warning here that we're all given. It goes on then to talk about where we looked, started with that verse. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And the next part to just point out in this, this uh, method of studying is these fancy words here in the middle, the uh, meta narrative and the motif. 
This is something I want to keep in mind the entire time that I'm going through a verse. What does that mean? The meta-narrative is basically just the overarching theme of the Bible. The, the central interpretive motif, the central is the core way that I interpret Scripture through this common theme that runs throughout the Bible. That means that whatever I come up with in this verse cannot go against the overarching theme of Scripture. If I, it does, I missed it, and i got to go back and study again and find out why is that seems to be not consistent with the overarching theme of Scripture. Well, what is the overarching theme of Scripture? Looking at Scripture itself to give us that answer, we see in John 5, 39-40, it says, Jesus himself speaking, you, talking to the religious leaders of the time, you search the Scriptures, that would be what we would call the Old Testament there, because you think that in them, in the, the Scriptures, you have what? Eternal life. It's not in them that they had eternal life. He says, and it is they, the scriptures, which bear witness about me. That is the meta-narrative, the, the central interpretive motif. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. That was why the scriptures were written, was to bring us to Jesus. Another verse later on in the same book, John says in, in John chapter 20, uh, verse 30, he actually, John the Apostle, lays this out for us. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written. And here's that you always look for these phrases. John is so good at this. He always tells us why he writes what he writes. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. The name of Jesus, Jesus, Yeshua, means what? Jehovah saves. Jehovah saves. We don't save. We can't save ourselves. Only He can save. That is the central interpretive motif of Scripture. So whatever I dig out of a passage and find out what a passage means, it can never go against that. It has always got to line up with that. The beautiful thing about this is that it actually appears in every passage. Looking right above, look at, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will, entrust themselves, basically, to God's will, their souls, to a faithful creator. I've entrusted my soul to God, the faithful creator, because he's the only one who can save me. Therefore, I can be doing good in the midst of persecution. That's the idea of the central interpretive motif. And so we go on to read the rest of the passage. Because of the suffering and God's will, and my being able to do good in that, and trusting him as to a faithful creator, says, so, the verses that, that Pastor Slate read, so I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. So here, Peter is referencing himself as a fellow elder, as well as a witness to the sufferings of Christ. This is the highs and the lows. I saw it at his worst. The sufferings of Christ could be referring to the crucifixion. We don't know if Peter was actually there at the cross during the crucifixion. We know that John was because Jesus addresses him and his mother Mary. Peter may have been so ashamed that he just stayed on the, on the fringes. But we do know, according to the two men who were walking on the road to Emmaus, that everybody was aware of this crucifixion. So it could have been referring to that, or at least is referring to Peter being with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane as well as the highs, the partakers of the glory that is to, going to be revealed. So here he's refuge, referring to a future uh, glory that will be revealed. 
It is going to be revealed. This is something all of us will see. Peter saw the sufferings of Christ. We didn't see that, but we will all see and be partakers, not just see, but be partakers in the glory that is going to be revealed. He then says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. And then he gives three comparisons. Not this, but this. Not this, but this. Not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. The next verse that will be covered next week is, Likewise, in the same way as this, as regarding the elders, this is why it matters to the church, in the same way, you who are younger, you are not elders, you are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, again the plural, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So in between this passage about elders has to do with all of us going through suffering and all of us being humble. It is sandwiched between verses that have to do with the body. So again, looking then at our method of studying, we want to look at, here's the outline that we'll try to cover in these verses. The under-shepherds, the flock, and the over-shepherds. And three things that we'll look at in the under-shepherds. We'll look at the plurality of, the definition of, and the kinds of. And so taking a look at those first, it says, So I exhort the elders, plurality of. There's all the verses right there in the New Testament that refers to elders in the plural sense, two or more, whenever referring to a local body, a church, singular, one church, always plurality of elders. But plurality of elders is not just the number, two or more. As I pointed out, it says, as a fellow elder, Peter is putting himself as a fellow elder. He could have said, like he did when he opened the letter, as an apostle. You want to listen to me? I'm writing to you as an apostle. He doesn't. He doesn't even drop the the Pope card. He never drops the Pope card, by the way. But he calls himself a fellow elder. This is not just the number of. This also has to do with what we call the equity of plurality of elders. Equity means that they all carry the same weight. Peter puts himself on the same plane, a fellow elder with these other elders that we don't even know their names. But he's saying, I'm just a fellow elder like you. Yes, one who witnessed the sufferings of Christ, as well as all of us will be partakers again in the glory that is going to be revealed. So plurality of elders is not just numbers, it's also equity. What does that look like at Harbor Shores? It looks something like this. You're looking for our organizational chart. This is how we see our leadership at Harbor Shores Church with Jesus Christ as the center. There it says the chief shepherd, 1 Peter 5, 4, right in the middle. And the other ten elders, pastor shepherds, around there together, rubbing up against one another, side by side, shoulder to shoulder. Unlike a business chart, a hierarchy, where it has the CEO and an under him, senior vice presidents, and under them, pre- vice presidents and managers, and so forth. This is similar, the idea was the idea that King Arthur had with his round table. That even though he was king, when he sat at the table with the other knights, they were all on the same plane. There was not a head of the table, because Jesus himself is the head. 
And so what is, again, that's what it looks like. But the idea, again, to protect and serve is how this actually works out in the plurality of elders. And his book lead, Paul David Tripp, goes through that and says that there is actually both uh, safety and strength in the plurality of elders. Safety in that it isn't all dependent upon one man. And if anyone knows what, it's, what this is like, Paul David Tripp personally knows this as he was called in to mediate in a church situation that, that was extremely difficult for him. As he saw when a church depended on one man's personality to carry the show and when that man would, would not be able to be confronted by anyone, he was unaccountable to anyone, he had no equals in his own words, unless your church is as big as mine, why should I listen to you? And Paul David Tripp was trying to help this brother and this body work through that. There was no safety for them because they had set it up where it was all dependent on one. But when it is not dependent on one, when there is this, this equity where when Pastor Vartanian comes in at the same time as Pastor Slate and they're the so-called new elders on the block, they carry as much weight as the elders who had been there the longest, Pastor Futrell and, and Pastor Kester, I believe. They carry as much weight as they do. There is no seniority amongst that. That is the equity, the idea of safety in having this plurality. So that when we stumble, somebody can approach us because they have our best interest in mind and want us to see walking in, in obedience to Christ. There's also strength in how we are able to serve together. I saw this meme on, on LinkedIn. It said, to build a strong team you must see someone else's strength as a complement to your weaknesses, not as a threat to your position or authority. Well, because there's no hierarchy here amongst the fellow elders, it's not a threat. It is, uh, not only do I thank God for the strengths and the diversity among the other brothers on the elder board, I thank God for my own weaknesses. Because it reminds me, I can't do it all. And I thank God for a Pastor Radcliffe who is good with numbers and who is able to have strengths in areas that I don't. So there is safety and strength to protect and to serve the body in the plurality of elders. Is there a hierarchy in the church? Absolutely. Ephesians 1.22 says this, And he, this was in the context, is referring to God. God put all things under his feet, is going to be referring to Jesus, and gave him, Jesus, as head, there's the hierarchy, over all things to the church. So yeah, there is a hierarchy. When people ask, do you have a senior pastor? I try not to say it glibly or, or just kind of like as a joke. We do. His name is Jesus. He is the chief pastor. He is the chief shepherd. We see that a little bit more specifically in a verse we studied months ago, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 22 through 24. It says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Well, now that we can easily see is referring to Jesus. That is the the uh, uh, redemptive indicative, meaning this has happened, this theological truth has happened, therefore you do then do something, the moral imperative, what? That we might die to sin. Because he died on the tree, we might die to sin and live, then as a result of that, to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed, for you were straying like sheep and you have now returned to the shepherd the shepherd, the overseer of your souls. 
Overseers is the word that also means bishop or one who guards the watcher over your souls. Jesus is the shepherd, the chief shepherd, as some translations even put the word chief in there, over your souls. So there's the, the, the first point I went in reverse, is that there is only one chief shepherd, over shepherd, despite others that we may call lead or senior pastor. We may call it, is it wrong to refer to someone as a senior pastor, lead pastor? Absolutely not. There is no Bible verse that says thou shalt not. So I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm saying there is danger in that, if in that you mean it all rests on this one man. But there is only one chief over-shepherd, and his name is Jesus. And he will have no rivals in his church. That's something that we want to always keep in mind. So looking back at our text then, looked at the elders in plural, but what does elders mean? We looked in the, the Oxford Dictionary, and looked in the Oxford Dictionary, because if it's good for Alistair Begg, it's good enough for me. The word says, of greater age. You see that right here. Just someone who is older than somebody else. And down at the bottom, it talks about of various Protestant and Presbyterian churches. Well, why, not, why bring up denominations regarding this? Well, it's not so much denominations, but when you look up the word in the Greek, the word actually means uh, presbytery, where we get the word presbytery. The word elder in the Greek is presbytery, an adult male advanced in years, literally one who was able to grow a beard. Now, if there is one on our leadership team who is more Presbyterian than others, it would have to be Pastor Vartanian. Now, some of us can grow beards. We just shouldn't because they don't look that good. But Peter goes on to say it is not just elder. It is also, he uses the next word he uses here as a verb, is shepherd. He's using not as a noun but as a verb. Shepherd the flock of God. To help us understand what an elder is, the word shepherd, we see that in the dictionary, it has the idea as the noun is one who tends sheep, one who guides, who cares. In the verb form, it literally means to lead. Uh, You see the word carefully manage, direct, guide or direct. But again, when we look at other translations, the Latin English dictionary says that the word for, for shepherd in Latin is pastor. It's where we get the word pastor. This is why, if you are an elder, you are a shepherd pastor. It's why I've been using the term Pastor Slate, Pastor Ray, Pastor Kester, Pastor Lindman. Because they are elders, they are shepherds. It's the same words. It is only us who makes distinctions by professionalizing the office to say, you go away to a seminary, come back with a degree, then we'll call you pastor. Am I saying it's wrong to go to seminary and get a degree? Absolutely not. But that's not what makes him a pastor. It is God who makes pastors. He makes men into pastors, into shepherds after his own heart. And so it is the same word. He goes on to say that it is, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising here oversight. Again, we looked at this word earlier when it was referring to Jesus as oversight. But this word, again, in the English one, is one who supervises especially those who are guarding against. And when we look at the Greek of this word, the word episkopon means to guard. The Latin is where we get the word bishop. The Latin for that Greek word we use overseer is bishop, a guardian, one who watches carefully, 
So you see elder, presbytery, shepherd, pastor, overseer, bishop, all of them describing the same person that Peter is writing about in 1 Peter 5, 1-4. Not six different positions. One more to look at is not in, in 1 Peter, it's in Acts, where Paul is addressing the elders uh, from Ephesus, and he says in verse 19, I serve the Lord with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of the Jewish opponents. Now, he doesn't use any of the words here, elder, shepherd, pastor, overseer, bishop. But this helps define who an elder is, and it's this verb that he uses. I served the Lord. It's the same word we get for slave or bondservant. Peter is saying, I, I literally, I slaved the Lord. I was his slave. I put myself as his bondservant. Bondservant was a willing slave. I put myself under the Lord to serve whatever he would ask me to do. And so there's where we see our definition for what an elder is. And as we look now at the kinds of elders that there are, again, this goes to the three contrasts that Paul does. The not but, not under compulsion. Right? He says, but, in a sense, willingly. Again, as God would have you do, not for shameful gain. But, he says, eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge. That's not what a slave would do. He would put himself under. But, there's the word, being examples to the flock. And you see it on the handout here. There are three types. On the one side, you have the man-made, self-centered, flesh-led pastor. Talking to a brother earlier in Sunday school class, going through a difficult situation with a church split in his church. And I really appreciated his heart of praying for even the other men on the other side, saying sometimes they can just become blinded. Again, going back to James, we all stumble in many ways. We can become blinded, sometimes by our own ambitions, and we can become ones who become as it says, man-made, self-centered, and flesh-led. Versus, on the other side of that, the, the buts, those who are, who are willing, eager examples of God-made, Christ-centered, spirit-led. I want to be that type of, of shepherd. And again, as, as I read these and I, and I look at the positive examples of those who are, who are willing, who are eager, who are being examples, I think of multiple examples in our body. I think of, of willing, the idea of not under compulsion was this word compulsion is, is the idea of being forced into labor. It was a, the term, it was being shanghaied, where you would actually be taken as a slave, human trafficking and, trafficking and forced to fight, forced to do battle or be killed. Not under compulsion, but willingly. When I hear that word willing, I immediately think of a text that went out last winter, Scott Lewis contacting the leadership team saying there's two and a half, three inches of ice on the sidewalk. Would you be able to let the deacons and the men of Harbor Shores know that there's, there's this work that needs to be done before service so that when people come in, again, protecting the flock, that when people come in, they can walk safely into the building. Within five minutes, two of the elders are saying, I'll be there in 10 minutes, I'll be there in 12. That kind of eagerness to serve. We have those kinds of men that are being examples to us in this body. 
And I want to be careful that that doesn't mean you have to say yes to everything. We have to guard against that. And this is where the plurality again helps, that we guard each other. And I've had men who say, Rob, I think you're taking on too much. Thank you. I need that. Because every time I say yes to something, I'm saying no to something else. Automatically. I can't do everything. So we've got to guard against that. But a good example of this, you know who does this so well, he's not here, and I told him I was going to talk about him, is Chris Fritz. Where is he? He's in the twos and threes. Protecting and serving your twos and three-year-olds. Now, I've got to wonder, who's got more energy in that room right now, the twos and threes or Chris? I'm pretty sure he can give them a run for his money, for their money, right? But Chris is so good at this. I don't have to ask if Chris is eager and willing. I have to ask Chris, does this fit in your schedule? He says, let me check. Let me, let me, oh, oh, that sounds great. I want to do that. Oh, that'd be great. Right? That's my Chris Fritz impersonation. That'd be great. I'd love to do that. Let me, let me check and make sure my schedule is available. And he does that so well. I know he's eager. I know he's willing. Not for shameful gain. This idea of shameful gain versus eagerness is this calculating. Hmm, what's in it for me? Before I say yes, give me some of what are the positives? What are the benefits? What do I get out of this? That's the opposite of just eager, wanting to serve. You see a need and wanting to serve. Again, as I said, you don't have to have the label of shepherd to be one who has a shepherd's heart. A brother walking by a room just this morning sees another person in the body hurting. And he was eager to walk into that room and just minister to them in that moment. Not even part of leadership in the formal sense, but certainly leading by example. Just seeing people in need of being served and protected and then being examples to the flock. Those are the kinds that we see, the three shepherds. Now looking at the flock, I'm going to look at three things very quickly. You're going to see the, the imitators of the flock, the emulators and the infiltrators. Looking at a picture of just the flock that we've talked about already, the over-shepherd is not a physical person standing there. The over-shepherd is Jesus Christ himself, the invisible head of the church over all the church. So the under-shepherds are basically older sheep within the flock. They're the under-shepherds. We're going to look at the imitators next, and then also the emulators, this guy over here, and then the infiltrators. Where's he? Well, he's a little harder to find. And we'll talk about that and what, the reason why. But looking first at the imitators, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, and we see this, and Peter mentioned this, right, when he said, but being examples to the flock, Paul puts it this way, be imitators of me, imitators, as I am an imitator, basically he's saying there, of Christ. When we think of imitation, that usually isn't a positive thing, right? Imitation leather, not as good as real leather, right? Imitation cheese, Velveeta? Apparently it's not even cheese. It's cheese food. I remember growing up, McDonald's had to take the word milk off of the menu in front of shakes because there was no real dairy product in it. It was just McDonald's shakes. I don't know if that's true or not, but I do remember they weren't called milkshakes. They were just shakes. Imitation is usually not a good thing, except we've all heard uh, the, uh, the saying in the, from Oscar Wilde, imitation is the highest or sincerest form of flattery. Everybody has heard that. What we're not aware of is that there's a second part. I wasn't aware of the fact that there's a second part of that quote. It's not the whole quote. The quote is, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. 
that mediocrity can pay to greatness. Well, now I'm offended. (laughs) I thought I was complimenting the person. But the song we sang, right, holy, there is no one like you. There is no one beside you. If Paul is imitating Christ, who is the greatest, everybody else at best, the best is mediocre. I don't have a problem with that anymore. Maybe Oscar Wilde uh, knew more of what he was talking about. No, even a blind squirrel finds a nut once in a while. So be imitators of me. We're all called to shepherd with the heart of a shepherd. You remember I told you this before, even if we don't have the title. And immediately when I read through Scripture and I see verses like John 10, 16, and I have other sheep, this is Jesus talking, I, Jesus, I have other sheep that are not of this fold, that I must bring them also. This is the idea of adoption. Jesus is talking about us Gentiles who are not part of the people of God, the, of Israel, the commonwealth of Israel. He says that I have other sheep that are not part of this fold, this flock, and I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. Our shepherd has an adopting heart, and there are many in our body who have that same heart. And one person comes to mind, a shepherdess. She is a fierce shepherdess, Tammy Guype, who has the heart of her shepherd, who has brought those into her fold to protect and to serve them. I think of her, I think of other verses that I read when I read 2 Timothy 2.2. says, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. So this is Paul talking. What you, Timothy, have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust them to faithful men who will be able to, again, teach others. I think of a couple of men right now meeting with other men faithfully getting up on Saturday mornings at 6.15 and 6 o'clock to meet with other men, special forces. They have squads that they're meeting with. Paul Marsh meeting with a couple of dads and sons. Think of Sam Carsey meeting with a group of men. Prior to that, not during this session, but in a previous session, Jacob Tifo, Matt Kieselbeck, having a heart of a shepherd, wanting to serve and protect others from false idea of what it means to be a man. Those men are faithfully serving with a shepherd's heart. One more that I think of a verse, Proverbs 11.1. A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but just waits is his delight. I don't know why, but every time I read this verse, I thank God for Dan Cattell and Carol Schmidt. They keep a lot of us out of jail (laughs) by doing really good accounting. Maybe not with balanced scales, but with really good calculators. They have shepherds' hearts, not just for accounting, but for protecting us and how we do our finances so that we might be in right standing with those in authority. Because all that they do, they do for a purpose, for a reason, to the glory of God. They have a shepherd's heart. This is, as I said earlier, that that, that the saying, as the leadership goes, so goes the church. Well, here's another saying, as the church grows... So grows the leadership. Where are the leaders coming from if not from among you? He's writing to you, to the elders among you, and then he writes to the elders, to the flock among you. As strong as the leadership of this church is, is because as strong as this body is. You grow us. 
You are using the gifts and talents that God has given you where you are. And it is growing those around you. It is not just the elders who have to do all the work. Our job is just to figure out ways we can equip you to do the work that God is leading you to do. And that is exciting. Think about what that would be if every single person here, every young person, every single person, every married couple, every grandparent, had the heart of a shepherd, shepherding those with this kind of a heart. Looking now at those who are emulators, Christ said in Matthew 13.24 that the servant of the master of the house came, and this is the whole parable of the, of the wheat and the tares. And in the middle there, the, stir, the servant said to him, right there, the servants, do you want us to go and gather them? Some translations rip out the weeds, the tares. But he, Jesus said, no, lest in gathering the weeds you root up or uproot the wheat along with them. Let them both grow together until the harvest. And at that time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. So here's the idea of this waiting and letting the emulators be with the flock. Later on in Matthew, he gets a little bit more specific. Before him will be gathered all the nations. He's talking about end times. And he, Jesus, will separate people run one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. That's this guy here. Now, he's not trying to disguise himself as a sheep. He just doesn't know that there's a difference. He thinks that he's just part of the flock. He's been going to church all his life. And he thinks that he's part of the fold. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, Examine there's the verb, examine yourselves. Don't examine others. This is not a goat hunt. We're not to be doing this, I, I think that's a goat. No, no, this is examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you? If he's not in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. If he's not in you, you'll fail to meet that test. You'll find out that you're not an imitator of Christ, that you're an emulator, one who is only trying to be that of those around them. You're emulating those around you. That's the warning. Here's the good news. Goats can become sheep. I was. I was for over 20 years thinking I was saved, but doing it in my own strength, trying to keep that switch up, just trying to keep it up, doing whatever I could. So I came to the end of myself and said, God, I am tired. I can't do this anymore. You have got to save me or I am lost. I believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation. And if he doesn't save me, I'm a dead man. I will spend eternity separated from him. God save me. And he did. Goats, you can become sheep. Simply by just saying, have I ever come to the end of myself? Have I ever stopped trying to just be better, do better in and of my own effort? And trust in the finished work of Christ. He is a good shepherd. said, my yoke is light. It is not heavy. Take it upon yourself and come walk with me. That is the good news. There's one more we need to look at. 
And that is the infiltrators. In Matthew 7, verses 13 through 15, Jesus says, talking about entering by the narrow gate, for the gate is what wide and easy that leads to destruction. Jumping down to verse 15, he says, Beware, there's the warning, beware of who? Of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Paul has a similar warning that he gives in Acts. Acts 20, 29 through 30. Paul says, again, to the address to the Ephesian elders, I know that after my departure, what fierce wolves will come in among you. They're coming in among you, not sparing the flock. And again, from among your own selves will arise these men, these fierce wolves, speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And then lastly, John 10, 12 through 13, Jesus says, He who is a hired hand is not a shepherd. He doesn't have a shepherd's heart. He's a hired hand who does not own the sheep. That's, that's why he sees the wolf coming then, and he leaves, he flees. He doesn't care for the sheep, he's just hired. The wolf snatches them and scatters them. Again, talking about persecution and suffering. He, the hired hand, he flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. He doesn't have a heart uh, uh, that his shepherd has for the sheep. That is why he flees. Back in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1-4, through four, maybe wondering, was it just a type and paste error that under kinds of shepherd, you have the same list under infiltrators of the knots. But only instead of making the knots, let's make this the infiltrators, that this is the thing they do now in the Greek. Instead of not, we'll just take the knot out of there, that they are under compulsion that they are for shameful gain, and that they are domineering. What they are not, they are not willing, they are not eager, and they are not being examples. It's the same list. That they are man-made, self-centered, flesh-led versus God-made, Christ-centered, and spirit-led. But, but you said earlier, that could just be a shepherd who is got the dimmer switch down and, and is failing, right? He needs grace. Yes, he does. And this, this wolf looks exactly like him, can be looking on the outside exactly the same. That's what makes it so sinister and so evil, is that on the outside they look the same. And typically if you do a search for wolf in sheep, that's all you have to write. You, you get really bad Photoshop. And you can't see that too well. Let me see if I use a different color, if you can see the green better. There in the middle, you see a wolf, and they'll put him like in a sheep onesie or something. <laughs> of trying to illustrate this wolf in sheep's clothing. right? And the best one I found was this one. This, this uh, illustration was a bunch of wolves with the, the sheep wool on them. And it's like, here's the question. Okay, now what? Which is a good question. Why? Because wolves never do this. Wolves never skin the sheep and put their, their skins on them and sneak up on the flock. Did Jesus not know about wolves? What was he talking about? When he said to beware of the false prophets who come in sheep's clothing, most likely what he was referring to 
was prophets who looked just like every other prophet, wearing the garb of a prophet, but he's a false prophet. You ain't going to be able to know it's him by how he's dressed. But inside, he's a wolf. A better picture I saw was this one. Had a picture of a sheep and a shadow being cast. And that shadow that's being cast, if you can see it, is the head of a wolf. Why? Because inside, he doesn't have the heart of a shepherd. He has the heart of a fierce wolf. And we can't see other men's hearts. You, you aren't going to be able to tell the difference outwardly. The only way you are going to know he is a false prophet is by what he teaches because it doesn't line up with Scripture. And for that, you are going to need to have your power of discernment trained and exercised. You can do this. The tools that I showed you of praying and reading and observing, just looking for things within the text, reading the passage before, the passage after, finding out what the original author meant by what he said. Another brother I met with yesterday said we were going through a passage together, and he's got a new Bible, an ESV. He said, I miss my older Bible, in the sense that it was the NLT, the New Living Translation. I said, well, that's good. do you still have it? Yeah, go get that, because that's a dynamic equivalent translation, where the ESV is a literal equivalent translation. You don't need all these other fancy tools. They can be helpful. But if you have two Bibles, one that is the NIV, a dynamic equivalent, and one that is the NASB, a literal equivalent, and you read the same verse and you make note of where the words are different, you've just done most of the work of Bible translators. Of finding out that different word, those two words together, gives me a better idea of what is the original word. You don't need a lot of tools to do this. And then you just look for someone to share that with. That is how we're going to know the false prophets among us. The over-shepherd, and this is where I'll close, just looking at three things quickly. We looked at the, uh, the under-shepherd, the flock, the over-shepherd. He is the owner, the watcher, and the rewarder. And the verse that comes to mind for this, I immediately think of Psalm 103. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who has made us, not we ourselves. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. God makes his sheep. He is the owner. We saw it earlier as far as him being the watcher in Second Peter. Again, looking at it, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might, again, die to sin. This is a, in a continuous present form, this verb means to continually die every day. Why Jesus said you need to daily pick up your cross and follow me. And to live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been, past tense, healed once and for all. For you were straying like sheep and now have returned to the shepherd, the watcher, the overseer, the garter of your souls. And he said, nobody can snatch them out of my hand. And nobody can snatch them out of my father's hand who is greater than me. And so he is the watcher over us. He is also the rewarder. We saw it in the very last verse and this is where we end. And when the chief shepherd appears, when he appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. He's a rewarder. You will receive. The most encouraging words in this passage for me is when the chief shepherd appears, not if. His return is guaranteed. And I know this is hard for some people in our body to hear. 
Because you had someone in your life who promised you they would never leave. A spouse, a parent, who said, I'll I'll, I'll be back, and they didn't. And this is still something that is impacting your life. How can I trust Jesus? It's been 2,000 years. He said, in a little while. It's been 2,000 years. Can I give you one thing that you can trust him? It's the empty tomb. He's not in it. Why? Because he says, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, do not think that I will come back and get you to get his bride. The tomb is empty. He is alive. Atheists, show me the tomb. Show me his bones. You win. We close shop. Game over. It's done. They can't. Several years ago, James Cameron, the director of Avatar, came out with a documentary of the ossuary bone box claiming to have the bones of Jesus. In less than two weeks, secular archaeologists said it was one of the most shoddy archaeologists' jobs that they've ever seen done. We didn't even have to raise a voice to say, that's not Jesus. The world was saying, this is bad archaeology. They will continually come up with ways that, that, this, that Jesus did not rise from the tomb. It's empty. And it's empty because he went to go and prepare a place for us. He is a rewarder. Again, just ending with the main point, there is only one chief shepherd. Do you know him? Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord. Philip Keller's book, A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23, I'd encourage you to get that. It's just really good where he was a professional shepherd and applied the things as a shepherd to what he learned about being a shepherd. He said, the Lord is my shepherd. He is Lord. We don't make him Lord. He is Lord. I recognize his lordship, and I come to the end of myself, and I say, God, you are Lord. Please make me one of your sheep. He is my shepherd. I shall not want. He causes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Does your soul need restoring? Come to the good shepherd. He is good. Good meaning perfect, complete, lacking nothing. As the worship team is is coming up here, I'd encourage you, this day, if you have been a goat, come up here and pray to God. Even while the worship team is walking, you can blend in with them. No one's going to know. Is it Will Smith or is it someone else? I don't know. Come, pray with Pastor Slate. Pray with me. And maybe you're, you're, you're one who has like been a sheep of the dimmer switch has been turned down so much. I say, you know what? I've been doing it in my own strength. No more. I'm going to rely on God, the Holy Spirit, who is able to do all in me. God, I'm not even going to rely on myself. I'm going to come alongside other people who can help me, who can protect me even from myself, who can help serve and I can serve with. Come. If there are other people that God has blessed your life with, that you know exactly where they're sitting and they have helped protect and serve you in some way, grab them right now and say, I want to go and pray to God and I want you to hear the blessing that you have been in my life. It may fill their sails with wind. Come and join us as we pray. God, thank you for this time, for your word. 
And I just uh, pray that you would use it for your glory, for Christ's reward, and use it not by our own power, but by the power of God, the Holy Spirit. Amen.